Father God, we are so thankful for how you're blessing Fellowship Greenville with folks who wanna be a part of the family. We desire nothing more than to serve one another well and uh, be able to enjoy the times that we do come together to fellowship, to sing songs that worship you and lift you high and open up the scriptures and be reminded of who you are and who we are because we're in you. And that's what we want to do in this moment in time. So would you meet us here? We will thank you for it. In Jesus' sweet name we pray, amen. Hey, today we're continuing our study through 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 7. So if you'd like to turn there in your copy of the scriptures, go ahead and do so. Before we jump into the text today, allow me to ask you a question. And the question is this. What are a few of the major life markers in your story? As in, when you look back over your life, your story of grace, if you're a follower of Jesus... What are significant things that shaped you, maybe even altered the trajectory of your life or a part of your life or a season of your life? So take a moment and think about it. Don't want to rush past it. Really want you to do it. I'm sure there are several for each one of us. Now I want you to think specifically about any major life marker that was centered around a conversation. So not necessarily a life event, but a conversation with someone that as you look back on your life now, you realize how significant, how impactful, meaningful that conversation truly was. Take a moment and think about that. Like most of you, I have several, but I'm not going to get into any of them this morning. That's not really the point for me to share some of my important conversations that shaped the trajectory of my life. But I did want us to think about our stories briefly, those significant and memorable conversations, because it might just help us, might just help you contemplate this incredible conversation that takes place in 2 Samuel 7. I mean, not to overstate it, but this chapter is the central chapter in all of 1 and 2 Samuel. And it's actually one of the key chapters in all the Bible. And this passage in your copy of the scriptures, if you look at it really quickly, look at your Bibles, is probably described or titled as the Lord's covenant with David or the Lord's covenant promise to David. And as I was studying this week, I thought, I don't want to assume that people know or understand the meaning and the implications of our God being a covenant-making God. And so I thought, I'll take about five minutes and I'll do a little bit of a recap of the biblical idea and meaning of covenant before looking at this specific covenant between God and David. And then I watched a short video and I thought this will be much more engaging than people listening to me because there's some really good drawings that go along with the great biblical things that are being said. So here's what I want us to do for the next five minutes. I want you to check out a little something from the Bible Project, of which I'm a big fan, talking about covenants. Let's roll it. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or 
maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful, even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure. 
somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who were becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Now, if you're interested, there are five-minute videos that unpack each of the covenants mentioned in that overview. And side note, if you're looking for a great resource for you, for your kids, for your students, download the Bible Project, enjoy it. It's wonderful. It's really, really solid stuff, all right? So that's the overview. As we've been studying uh, the life and the story of David, I've encouraged us on more than one occasion to read and study this by asking a few questions. Question number one, what does this tell me or remind me about in regard to who God is? What does this, what I'm reading and studying, what does this tell me about God? Secondly, how does it point me, point us to Jesus? And then thirdly, What are the implications for us if we're in a relationship with God through Jesus? Those are the three questions that I think we need to continually be asking as we're studying through 1st and 2nd Samuel. And even as we come to this passage today, it would be so easy and try to explore and cover all of the deep uh, theological richness of the Davidic covenant and what so many have written about it and articulated and the many nuances and thoughts. But as I've studied this week, I've been praying and processing and desiring to take a few minutes today to be reminded of our covenant maker. What does this tell us about God? How does this point us to Jesus? And what does it mean for us that are in relationship with God through Jesus? So with that being said, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. When King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, hit pause. I don't want to rush past this first verse of chapter 7 and this idea, this thought that the Lord had given David rest because we need to take a moment and remember all that's been going on with David, (laughs) because there's been a lot going on. 
When I was teaching a few weeks ago, we talked about David killing the giant Goliath and then Saul trying to kill David several times, which means David is on the run for his life. David's best friend, Jonathan, who happens to be Saul's son, is trying to help David out, trying to keep him alive. David, in an ironic twist, has the opportunity to kill Saul several times, but he doesn't. Eventually, Saul dies, but so does Jonathan. And losing your best friend is not easy. Then we have a war between David and another one of Saul's sons. That's about a two-year war. There are a few assassinations, because why not? And now David is king. So there is definitely a lot behind this simple first verse of chapter seven. The Lord had given David rest, true rest from all the surrounding enemies. And what we have in this chapter that we're looking at today is actually a conversation and it definitely stands out in the midst of all the action that has been taking place up to this point and to be honest, the action that is to come. But in the middle of it all, an impactful, meaningful conversation that is actually, fun Bible fact, the longest speech from God since back at Mount Sinai a long, long time ago. And it's the first time the Lord has spoken at any length since back in 1 Samuel chapter three, when the Lord was speaking to Samuel in the middle of the night. So that's what's taking place here, a little conversation between God and David. And this is what it says in verse two. The king summoned Nathan, who's the prophet. Look, David said, I'm in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent, exclamation point. So here's the, Situation: David finds himself in this season of peace and tranquility. And in the midst of this season, David has an idea, which I think might be relatable for some of us, like the circumstances leading up to the peace and tranquility might not be same, obviously, but some of us can relate with finding ourselves in the midst of a respite, peace and tranquility, and thinking, I got an idea. Like often when I'm on vacation, I come up with some ideas. Why? Because I have the time. I've got the mental space. I've caught up on my sleep. I'm just pondering. I'm walking on the beach. All kinds of ideas. Annoying my wife who thinks thinking about ideas while on vacation is not a vacation. We're very different that way. But I'm reading through this. I go, yeah, yeah, he's at rest. And in the midst of his rest, he goes, what? I got an idea. And David's idea has to do with the Ark of the Covenant. And if you missed... Charlie's message, it was a wonderful message. If you missed Charlie's message last week on 2 Samuel 6, I want you to give a listen because he talks a ton about the ark. David wants to build a more permanent structure for the ark instead of the ark being in a tent. Especially as we read here, David was living in a cedar palace. Now cedar, I don't know what you think of cedar today. I don't know what cedar's going for. But cedar in this day equaled luxury. It signaled wealth. It signaled success. It signaled power. And so David, living in luxury, he wants to build a temple, a house for the ark. This is his idea. And so he pitched his idea to the prophet of the day, Nathan. And this is what Nathan says in verse three. Nathan replied to the king, go ahead and do whatever you have in mind for the Lord is with you. Whoop, now, instead of Nathan, the prophet, Asking the Lord about what David was thinking, Nathan does what some men of God do whenever someone with financial means has an idea in their midst. An automatic yes. Oh yeah, sounds good, especially if it's for the Lord. 
Let's do it. No need to pray about it. But let's keep reading because the conversation's getting ready to get really good. This is what it says in verse four. But that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house. From the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day, I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Verse seven, yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? God gives David through Nathan a bit of a reminder. And it's a good reminder. Not just for David, it'd probably be good for us to think about today as well. Hey, David, I've never asked for a temple or a house. I've always been where my people are. Go all the way back to the days of Moses. If my people are wandering, I'm with them. If they're on the move, I'm on the move. Now don't, don't miss this. What does this tell us? Remember the questions? What does this tell us about our God? I'll tell you what it tells you. From the very beginning, he has been a God who is with us. I'm with you. The humility of our God, when he's having this conversation with David via Nathan, what jumps off the page at me is the humility of our God. It should stop us in our tracks. Charlie told us, Last week, he talked a good bit about how our God is so holy, and he is. And then you keep reading, and you see that he's also, he's not just holy, he's also humble. Not just when Jesus arrives in a manger as a baby, more on that later. Here in 2 Samuel 7, he's reminding David, I'm with you. I have always been with my people because it's who I am. I don't need a house. I'm not asking for a house. I am a God who lives amongst his people. Let's keep reading, because this is how the conversation goes in verse eight. Now go and say to my servant, David, side note, if you're picking up, this is the second time God's referring to David as his servant, not as king, but his servant. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes, and now I'm gonna make your name as famous as anyone who's ever lived on the earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people, Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past. The first part of verse 11 says, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Okay, remember, this conversation is taking place as David had an idea about what he could do for God, right? How he could provide something for God. Fast forward to 2024. Have you ever thought something similar or said something similar? Hey God, I've been thinking, I got an idea. And this idea, God, this is something that I could do for you and I think you're really gonna like it if you don't mind blessing it. And God says, no, no, let me remind you about who the true provider is when he's having this conversation with David. Look back at verse eight. 
in your Bibles. God says what? God says, I took you. God says, I selected you. Verse nine, God says, I have been with you. Verse nine, God says, I have destroyed all your enemies. And now it's not just about what I've done, God says, it's about what I'm gonna do. Also in verse nine, God says, I will make your name famous. And then not just talking about David, but all the children of Israel, verse 10, God says, I will provide a homeland for my people. Verse 11, God says, I will give you rest, which harkens back to verse one, where it says the Lord had given David rest, but the rest referred to here in verse 11 is a future rest. And all of this screams what? It screams, I am a God of grace. You will not do anything to earn something from me. Yes, you will do things through me, but make no mistake about the one who is doing the doing. For context, back in the day, it was typical for a king who was being pretty successful through military might to build a temple for the little G God that they were thanking for their success. And the thought was that this little G God would continue to make the king powerful, he would continue to reign, he would continue to have military victories. So that's the context. And God says to David, no, you're not building me a house, not you, not now. And in doing so in this moment, God is telling us something about himself. What does this tell us about God? How does it point us to Jesus? And it would simply be this. This is the reminder for some of you. If you're newer with us, maybe no one's ever talked with you about it before. Every other religion says, earn your way. Every other religion, whatever that little G God is, the teachings of that religion and that little G God is you do something for me and then I will do something for you. Then I will bless you. But we're reminded, and some of you have seen this in other places throughout scripture, but we're reminded here, again, 2 Samuel 7, all the action going on before it, all the action that's gonna take place after it, right here in the middle, chapter 7, In the middle of the Old Testament, God says, I'm a God of grace. You don't earn it. He's actually saying, I'm not just different than the gods of other religions. I'm absolutely opposed to them. I'm opposite. I'm not one choice on the shelf of all the things and you can pick me. I'm opposite of all of them. Diametrically opposed to everything they say. Author, pastor, Eugene Peterson says this. He says, I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David riding the crest of great acclaim, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people, captured the allegiance of all of Israel. He was heavy with success. And he begun to think he could do God a favor. But if David continues to develop along these lines, he will be ruined as a representative of God's kingdom. And then Eugene says this, and it's good for us to consider. If any of us develops an identity in which God and God's grace 
is less important to who we are than our own actions and performance. Our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. Let me say it again. If any of us develops an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to who we are than our own actions and our own performance, our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. Think about it with me for a second, if you would, because there's a couple of different ways to think in this moment, depending on where you sit today, your background, your upbringing, and I don't know everybody's up background, I don't know everybody's upbringing. But some of you think, you still think, that you need to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. Before you can have a relationship with the God of the universe who created you through Jesus Christ, you think you've got to have your act together. You've got to do some good things. God, this will impress you. Or you compare yourself to other people who are doing worse things than you're doing. And that's how you feel like you're doing okay in the world. Well, at least I'm not, fill in the blank. At least I'm doing better than whoever you're pointing at in your mind. You think that doing stuff for God will make you accepted. There's others of us in the room, maybe you do have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but where you still battle and struggle at times is you really think you're doing stuff for him alters his love and his care for you. You think he likes you just a little bit more because of the good stuff you're doing. He loves you a little bit more because you had a good week instead of a bad week, however you've defined good week or bad week or however you think God's defining good week versus bad week. And this uh, may be a little increasingly popular in uh, Western Christianity to uh, dunk on the Old Testament. Right here, 2 Samuel 7. God says, I'm a God of grace. My goodness and my kindness given to someone who deserves the opposite of my goodness and my kindness. That's who I am. I am with my people and I'm a God of grace. And then God says for Nathan to share with David a promise. So this is what David had wanted to do for God and God kind of comes back and goes, well, here's my counter promise, if you will. God says, here's what I'm gonna do. Look at verse 11, the second part. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings, For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. Verse 15 says, but my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever. What's God saying? Hey David, someone will build me a temple. Someone will build me a house. We'll keep studying the story and we're gonna see that it's David's son Solomon. But here God is telling David, I'm gonna make your descendants into a dynasty 
And I know that word's getting thrown around a lot these days because the Kansas City Chiefs just won a few Super Bowls in a row. And if that's the only way that you're familiar with the term, I'm really sorry. Let me give you like a real definition. Dynasty means a succession of rulers of the same line of descent. Now hang with me on this. Go back and look at verse 12 again. When you see the word offspring here in verse 12, that's to take, that's to take David back to the covenant God made with Abraham back in Genesis, if you remember from the video, where God had said, Abraham, your offspring will be so numerous that they can't be counted, the children of Israel. But if you fast forward to the New Testament, the apostle Paul says this in Galatians 3. Paul says, God gave the promise to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Jesus Christ. Paul says, in the covenant promise to Abraham, in the midst of all the descendants, there is one Jesus. And the meaning is this. Through one Jesus, many will be saved and redeemed. And now back to 2 Samuel 7, God is saying, Jesus, the redeemer, will come from your line, David. That through this son of David, the promise to Abraham would finally be fulfilled. So listen, the reason I'm saying all of this is to say this, this is not simply a few verses about succession. It's about a promise of redemption. It's the promise of salvation. It's the promise of the new covenant that would be fulfilled in and only through Jesus Christ. And our gracious God, get a load of this, our gracious God is saying to David, way back, 2 Samuel 7, He's saying in verse 15, my favor, or in Hebrew, hesed, which means faithful love. God says, David, my faithful love will not be taken from you. I'm committed. And nothing will stop or break or hinder my commitment. Hey, David, you're gonna sin. I'm committed. David, you're gonna die. I'm still committed. David, your offspring are gonna have some issues. They'll mess up. I'm committed. David, your offspring, they will sin. I'm committed. David, they will not be committed. I'm committed. Why? Because our God who is holy, who is with us, who is gracious, is a covenant-making, promise-keeping, redeeming God. That's who he is. And the son to come would be known as the Messiah. I don't know if you know this or not, but Saul and David are both called Yahweh's anointed 10 times each in 1 Samuel. And the Hebrew word for anointed is Maziah, which is where we get our word Messiah. But from this time on, the people of Israel began to talk about a coming anointed one, a Messiah who would reign over Yahweh's kingdom forever. So yeah, when you get to the New Testament and you crack open your Bible there to Matthew 1.1, what does it say? The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. 
the son of Abraham. Or let's get Christmassy. You wanna go to Luke 2, 11? When the angel shows up to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Nathan went and shared everything with David. And I could do another 35 minutes on David's response to everything Nathan relayed. But I thought I would simply read it because in many ways it definitely speaks for itself based on what we've already discussed this morning. So look at verse 18 and I'm just gonna read. This is David's response to what God had said through Nathan, his prayer back to God. I just wanna read it to you because this is what David thinks about what he's heard. About how this conversation's going. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed. Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty? Do you deal with everyone this way, O sovereign Lord? What more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like, sovereign Lord. Because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant. How great are you, O sovereign Lord? There is nobody like you. We have never even heard of another God like you. What other nation on earth is like your people, Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles and you drove out the nations and the little G gods that stood in their way. You made Israel your very own people forever and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, I am your servant. Do as you have promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that will last forever. And may your name be honored forever so that everyone will say, the Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, I have been bold enough to pray this prayer to you because you revealed all of this to your servant saying, I will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For you are God, O sovereign Lord. Your words are truth, and you have promised these good things to your servant. And now may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you have spoken, and when you grant a blessing to your servant, O sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. David is so overwhelmed at the grace and the kindness and the commitment of his God. You didn't notice how he keeps referring to God and how he keeps referring to himself, right? Multiple times he calls God, oh, sovereign Lord. And multiple times he refers to himself as your servant. God, you are gracious, and God, you are great. And I think Charlie talked about this the other day, talking a little bit about prayer, and it's not the point of my message today, but you see what David does? He just, he's just praying back God's promises. 
I'm gonna pray it back to you because you are who you say you are. As I've prayed for you this week, I've prayed that you would be reminded or maybe here for the first time of who God is. What does this tell us about God? Picking up from last week that he is holy. Walking into this week that he is with us. That he is gracious. That he is committed. This chapter we looked at this morning, it's a marker in history, it's a marker in Israel's history, but it's also a marker in the history that is the salvation story that plays out across the pages of scripture and all of human history. And if you have a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, it's a marker in your history as you follow Jesus now and for all of eternity. And maybe, just maybe, the reminder for you today is this. God wants to remind you that he's committed to you. And nothing will stop or break or hinder his commitment because it's who he is. I mentioned it earlier, but the New Testament, the new covenant declares that all of God's covenant promises are realized in and through Jesus Christ. To put it more bluntly, you're going to have some issues. God says, I'm committed. You're going to mess up. God says, I'm committed. You're going to sin. God says, I'm committed. You will not be committed. God says, I'm committed. How? Why? Because our God, who is holy, with us, gracious, is a covenant-making, covenant keeping, redeeming God, and it's been his plan all along. Now, there might be some others of you here today, and you've been thinking about God, and you've been thinking about Jesus, and you've been wondering and pondering whether or not you want to follow Jesus with your life. You've been thinking about whether or not you really want to have a relationship with God because of Jesus, Well, to you, I would simply say, we would love to have a conversation. Like even today before you leave, out in the commons area, there's an area called Next Steps. There are people there that would love to have a conversation with you today. And maybe it would be, maybe it would be a conversation that when you look back, you would say, it altered the trajectory of my life. Because earlier this morning, at the beginning of this message, when I asked you all to think about a significant conversation that altered the trajectory of your life, many of you, many of us, 
thought of the person or the people who sat with us and told us about a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, redeeming God who fulfilled his word through his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus is everything God is with skin on. Holy, yet with us. Sinless, yet incredibly gracious towards us. Committed. And here's the deal. You don't need to do anything for him. You need not attempt to earn your way with him, clean yourself up before coming to him, do something for him because you got an idea about what you could do for God if he's interested in blessing it. Because he is the only one who sees you to the bottom of who you are as you are and says to you today, I want you to come follow me. I choose you. I am a holy with you, gracious, covenant-making, covenant-keeping, redeeming God. Not, good, not just good news for David in 2 Samuel 7. Incredible news for any of us who sit here today in relationship with God because of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, for the opportunity <clears throat> to gather together today and be reminded of who you are, what you have done for us in Jesus and through Jesus, what that means for the everydayness of our life now for all of eternity. We thank you. God, if there's anybody here today who's just been wondering about following Jesus, having a relationship with you, maybe they've been thinking that they're in a bad spot and they gotta clean themselves up a little bit and be a little bit better before you would be interested in walking with them. I, would you give them the courage to go have a conversation? Maybe with who they came with today, they could have a conversation. And may we as a people who do walk with you, this group of people, Father God, may we not tire of coming together, declaring with our voices who you are, who Jesus is, what that means for us, and then opening up the scriptures and being reminded of the same and talking with one another and being reminded of the same and being in community with one another and reminding one another of the same and serving one another and reminding one another. May we never tired of that. Would you grow? I'm so thankful for the people that are coming here, Lord. Would you continue to grow this place with a people 
who walk with you and make much of you in the places they do life. In Jesus' sweet name we pray, amen.